Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guests on this episode are David Berkus, author of Friend of a Friend, and Zvi Band, CEO of Contactually. These guys are changing the discussion around networking so that we can all spark more authentic relationships. That is the definition of going where others won't. David, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. No, you're welcome. And Zvi, how are you? I am doing fabulous. I'm very thankful to be here. No, absolutely. Uh, glad you could come on and we're going to be talking all things networking. So we're going to go far and wide on this stuff and, and you guys uh, have some similar ideas but kind of come at it from different angles, which I love. And then uh, I've got some stories about this podcast and, and how I've kind of networked my way into some of the guests like yourselves, which I think might be interesting as well. So uh, let's just go straight into this. David Berkus, uh, you have a TED Talk on networking, and it's fantastic. And it's all about kind of changing some of the ideas and, and redefining networking so that it doesn't make us feel so sleazy. So how can we start to, to move uh, our, our initial impressions of that, uh, you know, standing at the conference and having to shake hands with people? Yeah, well, so, I mean, we could, we could start by kind of broadening the definition of networking, then beyond just that standing at the conference, right? The, I mean, the, the bad news is that networking makes a lot of people feel dirty. We know that from studies where we actually ask people about their experiences of networking and then give them subconscious tests. Uh, the good news is that everybody feels that way. So, you know, it's, it's not you, it's, it's the system as a whole. And I think one of the big things is that we really drill networking down into most of the time when we say it, we're talking about being at that conference, being at that happy hour, that meetup, that unstructured event where we're trying to meet a lot of new people. Uh, and usually when we're desperate for a job or we're desperate for a sale, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. But in reality, I like to think of networking as making a much broader view, looking at the entire network. As I say often, like you can't grow your network, you exist inside of a network. And so I define networking as anything you do that's a part of uncovering that network that you're already in, serving that network that you're already in, or even just moving through that network that you are already in. And that, I think, is a, is a broader definition, but it's also, it, it leads to a lot less shaking hands at cocktail parties and a lot more talking to friends and friends of friends. Yeah, and more so about cultivating it daily rather than an event. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny because we, you know, we talk about corporate culture and, and it's often kind of thought about in a similar way in that, you know, we have uh, a conference one day or a boardroom meeting and that's where the culture is done. And uh, yeah, it's funny because yeah. networking is very much the same. Oh yeah, or we, or we go to one of those recommendatory company picnics Right. Where uh, where we have all of this unstructured time around the grill and we just assume that means that everybody's one big happy family instead of uh, there. I mean, there's a lot of research on this, too, instead of designing events that actually let people meet people from other departments, from other sections and, and actually create what is that strong culture. But that's a that's a whole diatribe I could go into. But again, all of those problems stem from that idea that like that networking is putting people in a giant room and letting, and just trusting that they'll make new connections to other people. And that makes just introverts and extroverts alike makes just about everybody feel a little awkward. I completely agree. 
And Zvi, let's loop you in here. What I love about your work is you've kind of taken those ideas and, and looked at them from the tech perspective and your company's built a, a CRM around connections rather than revenue and, and sales funnels or like the traditional way of defining sales. So tell us about what you saw in, in the market and what that gap was when, when you started uh, Contactually. Yeah, it's really funny. And uh, David was talking about kind of those your corporate sponsor networking events. And I remember my first job out of college where, you know, I, I was a software developer by trade, you know, put in a cubicle, you know, kind of given guidance on like what to build and that's it. And I remember kind of, you know, seeing posters. So like, you know, new employee networking night. And I'm like, what on earth is that? And why would I ever go to that? Uh, so fast forward today, I should probably be the last person talking about it. Um, but in truth, you know, I think we, we all know that relationships are a most important asset. And it oftentimes is the relationships we already have, not necessarily the relationships that we have yet to create or initiate. And so what we saw, and again, you know, David has, you know, has all the research to it, is much more smart, much smarter than me around it, is, uh, you know, that we can only maintain so many relationships at any one point in time. And this is, of course, we're in this amazing age where software can back us up for that. And so, you know, our, our software is pretty simple. It's, well, how do we capture all the relationships that you've ever known, not just, you know, have in your head at, at any one point in time, and help you identify the actions that will take that will nurture the right relationships over a long period of time. Fantastic. Much needed. And, you know, as someone that came out of the sales industry, I was in uh, IT recruitment. That is much needed because like I said, everything is, is just pushed through that, yeah, that traditional sales funnel. Everyone's seen it and they've, they've you know, seen it diagrammed and, and that's kind of how we've built our tech. But I think there's a real opportunity uh, around what you're talking about with connections and, and making sure that those are kept up to date. And like I talked about earlier, cultivating them daily or monthly or yearly or however uh, long you have to, to cultivate it to, to keep it fresh and, and moving along. And, and luckily, like we're, we're in this really cool time where we're moving to a subscription economy. So even how salespeople operate is actively changing. You know, yeah, it used to be it was all about the like transactional funnel and just getting someone from one end of the funnel to the other and that's it. Who cares? You know, Glenn, Glenn Berry, Glenn Ross style. But now, you know, in the subscription economy, you know, we have to focus not just on that initial sale, but the repeat, repeat business that comes from it. And so salespeople are now, you know, given quotas, not just around new sales, but repeat and expansion business too. So therefore, you know, it's the onus on all of us, including the salespeople, to think not about a single single linear transaction, but around that, you know, that circle that keeps going and over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to come back to that. I want to uh, go back to David. Uh, this show sits at the, the intersection of sport and business, and we talk about uh, little bits of both. And you tell the story of how dormant ties led to the current iteration of the ultimate fighting championship ufc talking of of great salesmen uh, most people won't know that story so i'd love it if you could share it with the audience how how the kind of the current model that we have uh was from networking essentially yeah well and and sort of the unintentional serendipitous networking right like if right. it wasn't for a high school friend getting married 
we wouldn't have the UFCs. I mean, the, the story goes, not a lot of people know there's when, when the UFC was founded, it was founded by a totally different group of people than what we think of when we think of the UFC. We think of Dana White, the bald sort of loudmouth Boston guy. Um, and I think he would take loudmouth as a compliment. So I'm going to leave that in. Um, <laughs> it was started by him. And then the, the Fertitta brothers, Lorenzo and Frank Jr. are the ones that we associate with UFC, but it was actually started by a, a very different group of people. And they were going for, I mean, if you, if you want to, if you really want to gross yourself out, get on YouTube and watch some of the original UFC. The whole idea was like, let's put a sumo wrestler in with a ninjutsu guy and see what happens. Right. And it was brutal and it was likened to but senator john mccain likened it to human cockfighting and one by one every state gradually made it illegal um interestingly dana and and lorenzo didn't just sort of randomly meet each other around the ufc they go way back they were uh high school friends kind of acquaintances is probably the better term they sort of ran in the same social circles etc and then dana ended up getting kicked out of that high school um, this was in Vegas, Bishop Gorman High School, a really good football program at Bishop Gorman, by the way, as I understand. Um, Dana got kicked out. He moved back to Boston, to back to New England to live with his grandmother. And they probably would have never seen each other again, uh, except a couple different things happened, right? When they, when they graduated, Dana started working in boxing gyms, started being a trainer, eventually started being a manager and managed some of the people that were in that early brutal UFC era. Lorenzo, Lorenzo is the son of Frank Fertitta Sr., who is the head of Station Casinos, which is a, a casino empire uh, in, in Las Vegas area that now Lorenzo is active in boxing, right, active in events inside uh, multiple different casinos. So we go about 10 years out from high school, and they actually ran into each other at a friend's wedding from high school. Dana had come into to Vegas for the wedding. He sees Lorenzo. They start talking. They do that thing that, like, we all do when we meet old friends serendipitously, we catch up a little bit, we find out what we've been up to and see what things we have in common. And then we go, oh, we should do this again sometime soon. That was great. Although most of us never do, right? Unless, unless right. a piece of software like it actually reminds us, most of us never do. Uh, Dana actually did. A couple months later, he found out that the original owners of the UFC were basically bankrupt. And he calls up Lorenzo and he says, I think the UFC is for sale and I think you should buy it. And Lorenzo and his brother Frank go to their dad. Their dad actually tells them not to. They decide to do it anyway. <laughs> so the three of them, the Fertitta brothers and Dana, take this company over, change a lot of things. What I think is interesting is you think about talents and, and knowledge and skills and abilities. Dana is at the core of understanding what it is to be a pro fighter. He's managing boxers. He's training boxers. Lorenzo knows what it is to put on an event, to get sanctioning for an event, all of that sort of stuff. And that combination of the two of them is what really excels you see more than the money the Renzo the Fertitas put into it or anything else. It's that combination of those two things that really turns it into the fastest growing sport in America for decades. And then recently, a couple of years ago, the Fertitas and the 10% owner that was Dana White sold the UFC to a group of investors for $4 billion, which is about the same amount, give or take a hundred million as Disney paid for all of the Lucasfilm franchise. So an incredible amount of value unlocked because two high school buddies reconnected at a friend's wedding. And, you know, the lesson isn't to go to all your old friends' weddings. The, the lesson is there is a tremendous value to be unlocked in those what we call weaker dormant ties, those people that you know, but you don't know that well. You don't think about that often. They're not in your close circle of people that you see every day or every week, et cetera. 
but you need to be making a conscious effort to be reconnecting with them. Man, I, I love, I love that. I, uh, you know, I remember, uh, David, like you, you I've probably never talked about it, but you talked about serendipity. Uh, one of the slogans of compassion that I was never able to convince my team to go with was that serendipity and software. Um, because, you know, at hmm. the end of the day, when we're, you know, when we're, you know, staying in touch with the relationships, you know, one of the things we're looking for is to generate those, you know, serendipitous events that you're reaching out just as someone is, you know, looking to, you know, looking to buy that service that you have. Um, you know, you're, you know, you're staying in touch and you're staying top of mind and all of a sudden they say, oh yeah, I, I do actually need a software developer. Um, so I love that. So, you know, yeah, obviously you can rely on lucky things like that. But there's obviously this idea of manufactured love, which is honestly a, a lot of relationship building. So the serendipity behind this podcast goes back to, are you guys familiar with Tim Hortons, the, the kind of Dunkin' Donuts of Canada? Yo, that, uh, that, is, a, that is a compliment to Dunkin' Donuts, my friend. <laughs> All yeah, right. exactly. I've got, I've got Canadian family. So yes, believe me, every time they're here, all we hear all day long is about Tim Hortons. Yep, absolutely. And about to, to crash the, the Chinese market, I believe, as well. So it's coming on a, on a global scale. But the, the story around this podcast, uh, I was in IT recruiting, like I was mentioning, and I cold called a guy by the name of Marco Pavlovich. Marco was a senior manager there in tech, and we struck up a relationship. We didn't end up working together, and then I left the industry, and we caught up for a beer uh, randomly. We might see each other once a year. Told him I was writing a book. He said, if you're writing a book and you want to talk to a sports coach, which is what the book was about, I know Igor Kokoskov, who at the time was at the Utah Jazz, moved to the Phoenix Suns. He was the head coach there. Uh, he just left. And then, so I interviewed Igor. Igor put me in touch with Joe Dumas, the ex-Detroit uh, Pistons player, uh, from there, I got in contact with Adam Grant, and Adam Grant grew up in Detroit. And so that was our first episode, was Adam Grant and Joe Dumas together. Uh, they hadn't met, and so we, we mm. connected them on the show. And then Adam put me in touch with uh, uh, conferences out of the, the UK called Leaders in Sport, and they actually came on as a sponsor for the, for the podcast. So that one guy at Tim Hortons, that I didn't even end up working with. He wasn't a client. He was still a prospect for me. Uh, ended up snowballing essentially into what we're doing right now. So it's incredible. You know, there is that serendipity, but then once the, the snowball starts rolling down the hill, it's incredible where it can take you. Oh, yeah. no, totally. I, I think I actually know those guys, the leaders in sport guys. So that's, that's oh, they do an event. Uh, didn't they do it a couple of times in, in uh, the stadium that Arsenal plays in? They might have. They, they run a bunch in London, and they've, they're slowly expanding. There's there's one in Atlanta in uh, next month, I think. And I spoke at the one in Las Vegas, which, funnily enough, talking of UFC, was at their high performance center out there. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. I'm gonna Z. Let's go back to you because we've we've kind of talked about a couple of these things, but one thing that you speak a lot about is the authenticity of relationships. So it's all well and good to, you know, go and read all these how to network effectively articles on Inc and, and you know, Entrepreneur Magazine. And, but, you know, how can sales organizations balance that authenticity 
so that there's they're still selling, but they're not becoming Glen Gary, Glen Ross, like you mentioned earlier. Like, where's the where's the line, and how can they manage the line as someone who looks at it from from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, luckily, again, we're in, we're in this time where you know it's about the ongoing relationship, you know, of a customer, much more important than that one point in time transaction. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you know that's where I, we have the opportunity. Not all, not all do, but we have the opportunity to really, frankly, internalize that you know this belief that you know our our customers you know need on what we provide. They will benefit. They will be better for their businesses. And therefore, if we come in with this mindset of saying, "Hey, how can I help you be more successful?" Um, in part, it is the tools or the services that I offer. Um, that's clearly an important thing, and you should you know, not hide that. Yes, that costs money. There's some kind of you know value exchange for that. But beyond that, it's really taking this view of how can I give value and be of value to you. Um, over a long period of time, before you know that initial uh, transaction, before the contract is signed, while you are a customer, and even after. Um, so, an example that we do that I've seen other companies really exhibit really well too is that uh, why not create a customer community, right? You know, if you are serving customers of a similar demographic, um, when they be benefit, when they benefit from masterminding together and be able to you know share knowledge. Um, you obviously have purview into you know, a wide customer base. You can be able to share best practices. Um, but again, I think it really comes down to you know, understanding and believing that the services you provide um, can be of value to that person. Um, if not, then okay, then maybe we've got some work to, uh, work to address first. Do you think that we do enough for our active customers? Or is there still that kind of lean towards just always bringing in new business? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to kind of, you know, give a, you know, give a blanket answer to that. I, I, it really depends on the company. Yes, there's always more we can do. Um, and so one of, the, one of the approaches that we definitely instill is, you know, this active prioritization. Um, for the higher value relationships, you know, the bigger ticket clients, the bigger opportunities, the ones that have, you know, potentially like more referral opportunity. Yeah, it's worth investing more and more of your time to. So, yes, I mean, you know, I hate to say some, you know, some customers, you know, get the, you know, get the mug, you know, at the holiday, uh, at holidays every year. And some you're flying in and take them out to dinner. Um, some of them you are, you know, sending them a monthly newsletter with your market insights. Some you're again, you know, getting on the phone, understanding their business problems, understanding the state, and doing what you need to do. Um, I think as long as we're rooted um, in this belief that we're going to be able, that we're here to help our customers, um, then I think you know, the sales organizations can easily be powered to focus on whatever is best for the customer, which usually ends up being best for our businesses as well. I really like that idea of a, a customer community. I think that's a fantastic idea and, and you becoming the centerpiece of that. And uh, yeah, they all have something in common, right? Um, and don't get me wrong, it's a scary thing. I remember, <laughs> you know, the, the first time I, uh, I brought, you know, I think 50 of our customers to, for like a really nice private, uh, private event in San Francisco, I was freaking out the whole time because, you know, what would happen if one of them raised their hand and said, hey, by the way, I don't like this about your product, and all of a sudden it becomes, you know, a 
customer gripe session. Luckily, it's never been that. You know, I think you know, the, our customers appreciate being treated as partners, not as, you know, dollar signs. Um, but it, it takes a big leap of faith for an organization to, you know, to move from, you know, that transactional relationship to a customer relationship. And, you know, we're not just talking about business to business. We're also talking about, like, they're professional to professional. Um, you know, that applies this here as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, let's open the floor here a little bit. I, I want to uh, touch on your book. So let's start with you, David. Uh, friend of a friend. Uh, fantastic read. What I like to ask people, though, fellow authors, is what has the audience grabbed onto that you potentially didn't anticipate? You know, I, I kind of always preface it with, I have this idea in my head of Malcolm Gladwell going, I didn't think the 10,000 hours thing was the strongest point in the book. You know, I, I actually liked <laughs> this, yeah. this bit over here. Was there anything like that for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would say is I kind of saw it, probably because I was writing it, I kind of saw it as one continuous um, continuous journey. So, so, you know, very quickly, so the book is laid out in such a way that each of the chapters is – it starts from the place that you need to understand the science of how networks actually operate mm -hmm. in order to understand the community, the industry, or even just the organization that you're in. And the book sort of moves from the personal to the corporate. So it starts out with stuff that, that some people might be familiar with, like the strength of weak ties studies and six degrees of separation and things that are very sort of individual based. And then it moves towards um, here's, here's what larger, here's phenomenon we see in larger networks that you need to be aware of and what have you. I guess what I didn't anticipate is that it turned into there are two different groups of people that read the book and they both have very different takeaways, right? So obviously a book like that in the in the job hunting community, et cetera, in the sales community, it's very much they're really resonating with the, the individual chapters in the beginning. How do you understand the individuals that you are connected to? And then more recently, we've done a lot of work with corporations going, okay, well, let's talk about um, – organizations as a network and, and predominantly the thing that's resonating with them are some of the later chapters on homophily and how that affects, you know, diversity and inclusion efforts and those sort of things. And so it's, it's not, it's not like a little point that I would have, uh, didn't expect would, would take off. It's more that I didn't expect that like on any given day, I'm flipping back and forth mentally between thinking about how do we help an individual or a salesperson or that type of a thing on, in one situation, and then talking to an organization about why their DNI efforts aren't working through this lens. So that that flipping back and forth because two different groups of people picked up the book that I was not expecting for sure. And we talked about one-upmanship before we came on air. And Svi, you've got a book coming up that uh, <laughs> is directly competitive. I'm guessing with with David's work, but successes in your sphere is your book. It'll be out the 21st of May. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it's not. It's apples and oranges. I mean, you know, David, of course, is a lot smarter than me. Um, and I think, you know, his, you know, I have, you know, a couple chapters dedicated to research, but uh, a reading friend of a friend, uh, David runs, runs laps around me like multiple times over with kind of, you know, the level of academic understanding of, you know, some of these key problems. And we, again, I, I'm a software developer by trade. So I approach this very much from like a tactical strategy and obviously the book's not out so i can't necessarily give a kind of you know a, 
broad view of you know, what people like and dislike. I hope they like it, period. Um, please, David, please read my book. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, but what, you know, what did you, I, what, what do you like about it? Because we've all written books and, and that, that's really my point is that you kind of fall in love with certain aspects of the book or you think they're particularly strong. And then ultimately when you give it to the audience, it becomes theirs and they latch on to different things. So um, what what do you think this is packed full of? Absolutely. So I think, you know, and yeah, we spent a couple chapters talking about it, but I think the general gist that, you know, I, I expect people to walk in understanding or very quickly realize is that relationships are the most important asset. Uh, you know, as professionals for our current our, for our current task at hand, for our jobs, for our careers overall. Um, but when you ask people, all right, well, what are you actually doing today to, you know, to invest further in that asset, you know, under, underlying asset, most people draw a blank. Um, and so, you know, even some of the, you know, some, what, some of the best connected people in the world that we see that I've seen, again, still, you know, are sometimes missing that actual strategic approach that, you know, so many people thirst for. And so really, like, you know, we lay out the capital strategy, which is meant to be a, a recipe book to be able to build and construct, you know, a strategic approach to relationships. And most people just, you know, are thirsting for any kind of strategy whatsoever that they can follow and practice on a day-by-day -day basis. Totally. And don't, uh, don't, don't disregard yourself. Like we need the science and the practical as well. And my, my book certainly skewed more to the practical. I write about sports, so it's very hard to, to go in and dig into the, the science unless you're purely looking at high performance, but, or human performance, but, uh, team dynamics in sport are very hard to study. So, uh, I'm very much on the practical side as well, but, uh, we need both. So I'm looking forward and to that. And you buy all three of our books together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll I'll tell you what I like most about these. Being one of the the few people few people that are familiar with it ahead of, ahead of launch is that it that practicality piece, but also the the strategy of it, right? So friend of a friend ends every chapter ends with like, here's the thing you can do, and we designed them all in a like this will take you five minutes. But what we didn't tell people how to do is how do you make this a habit? How do you make this a regular ongoing thing? And in fact, that's even, I think, the first uh, part of the whole strategy is that you need to be consistent with it. You need to be, it's about habits. It's not about do this one or two times um, and it'll work. And that's something that I really like about these book is that that strategy, that repetitive, these are these are things you build every every single day. Um, I think, isn't that, so the capital, like acrostic, isn't, isn't the idea that you're building it as a habit every day? Isn't that the first one? Yeah, absolutely. No, spot on. I mean, the, the first C in, uh, in capital is consistency. And that's really where we saw most people lacking, um, which again, you know, when you think consistency, like how does that relate to relationship building? Um, the truth is, I think we all know that, you know, relationships, you know, span over, you know, years and decades. I mean, in the case of UFC, you know, that, that was like, you know, 10 plus year, you know, time span between that initial connection and, you know, the business opportunity that came up, which is, you know, pretty amazing. Um, and so, you know, most of us, especially nowadays, you know, we're such a interrupt-driven society where, you know, we fall victim to the tyranny of the urgent and whatever emails at the top of our inbox or push notifications on our phone is therefore the most important thing we can be working on. 
And so we often lack that purview to be thinking about, well, what's going to benefit my job, my career, my life, you know, two or three, two or three years down the line. And how can I set aside time in my day today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after to build and maintain that? Because you're right, like if I were just to open up my phone and, you know, text five random people today saying, hey, just thinking about you, great, you know, that might do something. But, you know, just going to the gym, you know, one day a year isn't going to help as much. It's not repeated practice. Almost, you know, regardless of what you do, the act of doing consistently will make a much bigger impact. 100%. And one of the things you've been doing, and it's not a, a direct networking thing, David, but you've been posting on LinkedIn at a video a day. Yeah. I mean, we, wait, te- technically every uh, weekday, I take Saturdays and Sundays off, but yeah, for since August 1st. So not, not quite a year. We call it the, uh, we call it the daily Burke because we're not all that creative with, uh, with names. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the idea is a simple sort of two or three minute video. And, and that it's that it is that consistency piece. That's been the biggest payoff. The audience growth has been great, but what's cooler to me is seeing people that are commenting or even dialoguing with each other in the comments of the video yeah. every single day. There are certain people that I can count on will leave two or three comments a week because they're watching it consistently. And that is what's really fun. Speaking of building communities, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm one of those. I, I, I consume your video every day or whenever it's on my wall. It's uh, it's a bit cloudy now uh, as they've changed the algorithm. But um yeah, it, it, you're right. The consistency piece is incredibly powerful. And, you know, I go so far as to make sure that I'm spending or, or calendaring time to be on LinkedIn. Um, that That's what I consider to be my kind of networking. And, and what I do is I'm finding people for the show. And, and because for the most part, we're talking about a, a topic that they have consistent ideas about, but may not know each other. And so I'm constantly scanning the environment for, for different people. And you two guys obviously knew each other beforehand, but for the most part, our, the guests don't know each other, but have some sort of commonality. So yeah, that, that consistency in looking every day and, and seeing who everyone else is commenting on and, uh, you know, where you, where the people that you're following, David, then I'll jump in and, and follow. So that daily activity, we talked about that snowball effect uh, beforehand, but it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, and yeah. none of this is really rocket science or challenging, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, David, you know, I love your videos, but you know, it doesn't take much work to like kind of you know do a two to three minute video at any one point in time, but doing it consistently over and over again—that's the really hard part. So uh, that's why, honestly, we put it as the first and foremost thing because. You know, if you're not consistent in your actions, even if it's just doing it like once a month, um, you know, you're, you know, every other tactic we can throw at you about how to host, you know, cool dinners or how to prioritize your relationships or how to add value, gain leverage. None of that matters if you're just going to do it once and kind of drop and walk away. And I, and I think that there tends to be an opportunity for creativity as well. So like I said, you know, David, you're not doing those videos to, to network, are you? It's, it's an opportunity for you to, to talk and, and get your ideas out there. But um, it's kind of a creative way of just putting yourself at the forefront of, of people's thoughts on a daily basis. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I use a b- bit broader definition of networking. One of the things I am trying to do is sort of build a community of viewers who are who are talking to each other. There, I hope they become customers and buy a book or or contact me to come speak at their conference or whatever. But really, as long as there is that community that's in the comments, that's what's really exciting to me. So I would still I put that in the purview of networking. I'm never thinking about it from the standpoint of, oh, if I record a two minute video every single day, I'm going to be able to then meet so and so target person that'll change my life around it. I never think about it that way. I think about it much more with an open posture of let's build this thing and who knows where it's going to go. And I mean, that's that's true of all networks. You have you have no idea where certain relationships are going to go because you just can't see who's one or two degrees out. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the idea of this podcast, why I wanted to do it around a topic and, and bring in people that didn't know each other was an opportunity for them to network. So, you know, here's me sitting here watching you both on Twitter talk about similar things or both on LinkedIn or wherever I'm kind of watching from um, and introduce those people so they get to talk about their commonalities. And, and one of the greatest things that has happened as a result of this is those people have been hanging out. So the amount of messages that I've got straight after a show saying, can you like give me his his or her phone number? Um, you know, Fergus Conley, uh, who we had on, he was a high performance director at Michigan Football. He lives in, in Ann Arbor and he flew to San Diego and went and hung out with Gary Ridge, who's the CEO of WD40, just because they were on the show um, and, and things like that. So that's what I was thinking with the, the creativity piece. Like we don't need to be stuck in this go to a networking event like we talked about at the start. You can turn a podcast into a, a relationship building and, a, and a, a networking opportunity for yourself and obviously for the audience like you were talking about, David. Yeah. So I mean, let me, if I can get nerdy, there's a, uh, there's a whole series of research that shows that people just don't mix at these networking event type of things, but that what the uh, researcher Brian Uzi calls a shared activity, that's where bonds are made. And he defines a shared activity as three, has to have three characteristics. It has to draw people from unlikely, like from diverse sources, right? It can't just be all from the same thing. It has to, and it has to have a goal other than, than meeting new people. That goal has to require interdependence, meaning you can't achieve that goal a bunch of people individually. You have to work together to achieve it. And there has to be, it has to be possible to fail. There has to actually be like stakes, right? And if I usually, when I talk to corporations, I talk about that as what volunteer activities could we plan that would draw people from departments out? Or what are, what are things after hours that we could do that would support that idea rather than just throwing a cocktail hour? What I think is interesting is you think about the, the type of podcast that you've designed. You're not doing an interview show just for you. You're doing it to bring different groups of people together for a purpose, creating content, recording a podcast. There, that requires interdependence. If you just spent 30 minutes talking to me and then 30 minutes talking to V, that would, that would be a terrible show to listen to. Um, and there has to be stakes, right? There's, it's possible that this whole thing could fail. And because of that, all three of us are, are invested in that. And that then creates, that's a shared activity that creates a deeper bond than do these unstructured events. And it creates an increased likelihood that you're going to build bonds with people who are different from you, which is something all of us need, whether on a personal or a professional level. And uh, one, so it's kind of a perfect example of, uh, of this is uh, in uh, New York, there's uh, this uh, dinner group called uh, 747 Club. And yeah, obviously I talked mm. about, you know, 
get, getting clients together for dinner. Yeah, that's obviously a cool thing. But what uh, Chris Shembra, the, the founder, does is you know, everyone has to show up at a particular point in time. They are given, I think, 11, up, you know, 11 different tasks to do. You know, someone, you know, boil, like a couple of people are working on like making the pasta. A couple of people are working on making the salad or, you know, making like the peanut butter the, you know, uh, for, the, for the dessert. Um, they're given very specific tasks. And through that, of course, you know, you're bonding and creating structure. And that actually goes to kind of one of the, uh, one of the fallacies that people think that, you know, relationship building is all around just, you know, direct, you know, between one person and another. But really what matters is kind of we're delivering this valuable experience. And it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, us, but done by us directly, but it could be done by the connections we make or the environment we create as well. Yeah. Well, and I want to jump in here too, because Z, Z and I are both friends with Chris. His pasta sauce is amazing. But like <laughs> we think about things like dinner parties or even, or even your, the contactually event for customers, we always think like, oh, that's super expensive or that's this or that. Chris runs them out of his like 800 square foot apartment, right? <laughs> Where he clears everything out. You're eating in like it's a studio apartment. So you're eating at this long table with 11 other people and you can see his bed, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> But it doesn't matter because we've all done that activity together. So he, I mean, he literally, it's called, it's called the 747 Club because it takes 13 minutes to take a box of pasta off the shelf and make it uh, actually sort of soft, right? So we have 13 minutes to do all this prep work. But those 13 minutes are what make the remaining two hours of eating together so much more rich, right? So this isn't a, a cost thing or anything like that. There, there are, there's basically no excuses to figuring out what your authentic version of these types of shared activities are. Yeah, one of our last episodes was with Kevin Rutherford, who's the CEO of Noon Hydration, and we had him on with Dan Pink, and we were talking about how Noon, their their business meetings and essentially their networking is done via runs. So whenever they're in Toronto, for instance, Kevin will send me an email, like, hey, we're going for a, a morning run, 6.30 a.m., you know, meet at, at the brewery downtown or the Rogers Centre or somewhere, and, and we'll go and run and you know invite a couple of people. And like you're talking about, there's your shared activity right there. And whether you're super into running and, and do marathons or 5Ks every weekend or not, you know, there's a, an immediate community. And, you know, broader than that, the endurance sports community is, is kind of that on steroids, that, that idea of shared suffering that they have, you know, riding 150 kilometers or, uh, you know, doing an Ironman together. Um, that community is one of the strongest that I've witnessed and, and been a part of for the last couple of years that... Uh, yeah, the business opportunities that come out of that and the uh, friendships that come out of that are just extraordinary because of that shared event. All right, lads. So we're starting to to wind down now. I know we've got a, a bit of a, a time restraint. So the way that we start to end the show is I want to know outside of your work and, and what you're focusing on, what are you learning about? What's intellectually stimulating you at the moment? So we'll start with USV. It could be anything. It could be researching the Flat Earth Society because you watch a documentary on it or uh, Ted Bundy. I, I don't know. <laughs> What's uh, kind of outside of your sphere that you're looking at at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, so I actually just this morning uh, finished uh, uh, Yuval Noah Hariri's uh, a more recent book, uh, Homo Deus. Uh, have either of you guys read it? I haven't yet. No, but I watched his TED talk on it. Yeah. Is that kind of thing? Uh, 
Yeah, well, I'm technically, again, I didn't read it. I listened to audiobook, so I count that as reading these days. Uh, Deal. You know, so I, I would say that, you know, uh, you know, his first book, Sapiens, was kind of, you know, history looking backwards. You know, Homo Deus is now looking forward that, like, what, you know, what humanity might look like moving in the future. And so, again, it's really interesting, kind of, you know, moving, you know, we've, we've moved from this world of, you know, of, of being religion based where, you know, we moved into scripted religions and we moved into humanism. Um, and now, you know, we're moving into this, you know, more interesting world of what is it? Um, I think it's fascinating. So it definitely kind of opened my mind to think about how the world might be different. And, you know, honestly, even like, you know, 10 or 20 years. Has he proposed mm. space communities like Jeff Bezos did uh, yesterday? Uh, he proposes, honestly, uh, I mean, definitely global warming is something that he's very concerned about that, you know, none of this may matter because we may just not be able to exist. Um, but the, uh, but he did, you know, really address more that, you know, we might be moving into this world again, as we see in this present day, where data is one of the most important assets that, you know, businesses create, that people have. It's all about my personal data. Um, are we moving into this world where like data is the uh, is a new religion and the creation of data, the consumption of data is one of the most important things we can do? Uh, it, it's pretty cool to be thinking about. It's definitely opened my mind. I love that stuff too. David, what are you looking into at the moment? Yeah, uh, not that. No, <laughs> I mean, I, so in a way I actually am. So I've been, you know, we, we wrote this whole book about, about networks and at the very end, there is a discussion about what uh, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, two network scientists called the three degrees of influence, the way that the community that we're embedded in affects us, even including people we haven't met who are just part of that same community. And so that, that has been my rabbit hole for a while now. There's probably some sort of follow-up project there. I don't know what it looks like yet, but I'm just continuing to research the ways in which, uh, you know, social contagion phenomenons, but also just the ways in which communities um, affect us more than we know. My, my theory is that there's a whole lot about habits, like how to establish personal habits by analyzing yourself. And I think the thing that's missing from that is analyzing the community that's a, around you as well, because they're probably going to have a bigger say on your habits than whether or not you can like retrain yourself to use your smartphone appropriately. I find that stuff fascinating as well. And that, you know, Seth Godin tribes idea of how we exist in, in all these pockets and those pockets have never been so accessible to us as they are now. And the impact that that has on, yeah, even our daily habits. Um, I, I'm completely on board with that. So I love reading anything intellectual in that space. Yeah, right. And it's, it's also, it's, I mean, it's never been easier to find a community that shares the ideals that you want to actually strengthen, right? 200 years ago, it was kind of like, well, you were born in this small town that's separated from that small town by hundreds of miles and days worth of travel on horseback. So you're out of luck. Now it's never been easy to move, to change communities if you want to actually change your life. Absolutely. All right. Final promos, fellas. Zvi, let's start with you. Where can the listeners find you? Where can they find your book, which will be out 
uh, yesterday, I, I, <laughs> maybe. Um, we'll probably release this on the Tuesday. So where can they follow along with everything that you've got going on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the website uh, for the book is successisinyoursphere.com. Uh, and then you can obviously just you know, do a quick search on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, et cetera, for successes in your sphere. Um, and luckily, uh, my name, first name VVI, last name B-A-N-D. Um, I am uh, the only V-band out there, so I'm pretty easy to find. There aren't too many Cody Royals floating around either, so it's fairly easy for me to get my .com. Um, David, uh, what about you? Where can people find you? You're, you're all over the place uh, on the internet, but uh, where can they follow along with everything that you've got going on? Yeah, so I, I've got the same phenomenon. David Burkus is pretty easy. There are two of us on the interwebs, and one of them writes exclusively about finance, and I, I don't know anything about that. So if you find that one, you found the wrong one. If you find this other guy posting videos from his office and his library every single day, that's me. Uh, com is probably the easiest place to do it. Although uh, what I would love is, I mean, Cody, you mentioned it, is to type that into LinkedIn instead. And let's get together there because that uh, that's turned into the place where grownups have conversations on social media. Every other network is sort of degrading. That one's becoming more and more enjoyable. Isn't it? Yeah. And that's why I've started putting so much more time into it. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And uh, even if it's just someone just giving you the thumbs up and saying, this is great work, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, an energy boost as well. But um, yeah, definitely follow along with, with the Daily Burke as well. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was great that we could form this relationship and, and do a show about networking uh, and network ourselves. And um, I, I hope there's a ton that the listeners have taken away. I have a page full of notes here that, that I've learned from you guys. So thank you for bestowing your um, knowledge on me. And um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what we can work on 5, 10, 15 years down the line. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.